then? Most heaven, West Jamaica, Chewy's Mountain, shining down the river. All my friends there, pulling on those reeds, young and then the mountain, going like a bee. Hello everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine. Trying something new here today. I have turned up the gain quite a bit on my microphone uh, based on feedback from one of our medical students who's enjoying these podcasts but is having trouble hearing them when she's running or riding in the car. So I'm turning up the gain. Hopefully I'm not turning it up too much, but I guess we'll find out. And by the way, if you have any other feedback about these podcasts, if you'd like more of certain things and less of others, please reach out and contact me uh, through my email address. If you're a student at UC Davis, you can also use TigerText, of course. Um, so today we're going to do something slightly different. This is still going to be prep for step one and step two. However, we're going to make a shift from bugs to drugs for today so that you can review a little bit about some drugs, specifically anti-inflammatory agents. And the music that I brought you in here with, of course, was the famous Toots and the Maytals. And that is in memory of Sam Clayton Jr., who died at the age of 59 from the coronavirus. And Mr. Clayton actually was born and raised in Jamaica, and he was considered a musical jack-of-all-trades. And he was the producer and sound engineer at Kingston's famous Harry J. Studio, where he contributed to music by Jamaican roots reggae artists like Horace Andy and Ernest Wrangland, and was actually a sound engineer as well for Toots and the Maytal. So we also uh, worked with Steel Pulse, which was a British uh, reggae band. So he worked far from Jamaica with reggae performers as well. He's a loss to us all, and um, we will miss Sam Clayton Jr., from Jamaica, died at age, I think I said 59, I meant 58, from the coronavirus. All right, let's dive in here to some clinical vignettes for you to review some things for step one, step two, and also for the practice of medicine. None of this is bad to review for practicing medicine. First case, a 43-year-old woman presents to your rheumatology clinic for consultation regarding her newly diagnosed rheumatoid arthritis. The patient explains to you that her biggest concern is that she has had gastric ulcers in the past, and she heard that some of the medications used to treat rheumatoid arthritis can aggravate the lining of the stomach. 
You explain to the patient that there are many treatment options for rheumatoid arthritis, some of which can modify the progression of her disease, while others are appropriate for symptom relief. As you begin to write out prescriptions for her, you explain that one of the drugs that you are recommending for her will act as an anti-inflammatory with a lower risk of developing gastric ulcers as compared to ibuprofen. You do warn her, though, that use of this drug may also increase her risk for stroke and possibly myocardial infarction. What drug is it that you are writing for her with this recommendation and warning attached to it? So think that one over for a moment. And yes, that would be celecoxib. Uh, celecoxib is uh, an irreversibly inhibitor and inhibits COX-2 thereby resulting in decreased prostaglandin synthesis. And this generally leads to an anti-inflammatory effect, of course. COX-1 is generally regarded as being present in most tissues, especially the stomach, whereas COX-2 is thought to be upregulated at sites of inflammation, such as the endothelium and inflammatory cells. Thus, by selectively inhibiting COX-2, the negative side effects of other NSAIDs, such as gastric ulcers, may be minimized since those effects are thought to be mediated through COX-1 inhibition. So this is a fairly important concept for you to know going forward in medicine or for taking these standardized test questions. The difference between COX-1 and COX-2. So again, celecoxib is a selective COX-2 inhibitor. So you, it's used in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, and acute pain, especially in patients who've had gastric ulcers or renal disease. It can also be used to reduce colonic polyps in patients with familial adenomatous polyposis. Bet you didn't know that, or maybe you did, and you're really smart. Side effects of celecoxib include GI upset, and they don't mention it on this flashcard, but also can cause diarrhea um, and flatulence. Um, I've seen that a few times, uh, or heard it as the case may be. Um, it also can cause interstitial nephritis, allergic reaction, if they're also allergic to sulfa drugs. So you have to be careful in sulfa allergic patients. Can also cause increased risk of thrombosis, including stroke and myocardial infarction. And I was reading a bit more about this drug. I think that has become somewhat controversial. Uh, and I actually saw an article that the FDA considers the risk comparable to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen. But I would still talk with patients about it. So I think it's a little bit of a black box. And then um, there's also, uh, if you want to know about rofecoxib, uh, it's another irreversible inhibitor of COX-2 and was used to treat arthritis and chronic pain. So this was also known as Viox was the trade name. It was withdrawn from the market in 2004 because of increased incidence of heart attack and stroke, which was observed to be associated with the use of this drug, Rofecoxib. I'm probably saying that wrong, but we always used to just call it Viox. But that was taken off the market years ago, i.e. about 16 years ago to be exact. All right, so good one to know. 
All right, so your next clinical vignette is a 71-year-old woman who presents to your clinic complaining of pain in her right knee. Upon further questioning, she tells you that she has noticed that the pain is usually worse during the evening after a full day of activity. Physical examination reveals a swollen, tender right knee with minimal joint effusion. You also notice bony nodules on her distal and proximal interphalangeal joints. We'll come back to those in a moment. You tell the patient that you suspect she has osteoarthritis and you recommend an over-the-counter medication that will help relieve her symptoms by reversibly inhibiting cyclooxygenase 1 and 2. So just to pop back to these findings on her hands, um, I must say I'm not sure of the association between um, findings of osteoarthritis on her hands and her complaints about her knee being consistent with osteoarthritis, i.e., I don't know if you can link the two necessarily, but uh, be that as it may, what are those uh, nodules on her distal and proximal interphalangeal joints called. And I guarantee you, if you're a medical student in the second year class and you work with me next year, I will ask you about these, i.e. pimp you on them, uh, because so many patients have these findings. So the ones on the distal interphalangeal joints are known as Heberden's nodes, and the ones on the proximal interphalangeal joints are known as Bouchard's nodes. So those are eponyms. You don't have to remember the eponyms. It's more important that you remember the significance of the finding. At least that's what I always say. You only have so much room in your brains for eponyms, but they're fun if they help you remember things. Anyway, so what drug are you talking with this patient about? Uh, I don't have choices for you, so you just have to tell me what you're talking about. And, of course, you're talking about non-selective, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And these include many, uh, everything from meloxicam, peroxicam, ketorolac, naproxen, indomethacin, diclofenac, sulindac, and oxaprozone. Uh, so exoprosin I've never actually heard of or used. Um, wondering if it's even marketed in the United States. Probably is. But anyway, these are all non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The ones you'll see used when you're on the wards and in the clinics the most are probably um, ibuprofen, which interestingly enough they didn't list here. But... <laughs> Uh, you'll see indomethacin used if you're dealing with patients with gout, um, and depending on what country you're working in, you may see different non-steroidal anti-inflammatories used. And I'd also say that um, things like uh, ketorolac you'll give in the emergency room, that's usually given uh, intravenously or intramuscularly uh, for more rapid onset of action. Naproxen is um, generic our trade name for that is naproxen, but naproxen gets uh, given out a lot as well. But ibuprofen is probably the biggest one. So the mechanism of action, uh, ibuprofen is a reversible inhibitor of cyclooxygenase 1, COX-1, as well as COX-2. So it's a non-selective inhibitor of COX-1 and COX-2. Inhibition of COX-1 and COX-2 reduces the conversion of arachidonic arachidonic acid to prostaglandin precursors, thereby resulting in decreased prostaglandin synthesis. 
which, as we mentioned in the last case, generally leads to anti-inflammatory effect. Without prostaglandin E2, there is decreased sensation to pain, a decreased set point to hypothalamic thermoregulatory center, and therefore it works as an antipyretic, and decreased synthesis of protective gastric mucus. Key thing to know if someone's getting gastric upset and or at risk for gastric ulcers. Without PGI2, there is, or prostaglandin 2, there is increased gastric acid secretion, which can lead to gastric ulcers. So the clinical uses, there are many uses for the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, can be used as an antipyretic, an analgesic, and an anti-inflammatory, including for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, gout, and so forth. So the one you'll see used most commonly in this class of drugs for gout is indomethacin, but the teaching that I have always received about this is it's because it's one of the oldest non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and was used the earliest to treat gout. Um, whether there's any basis, like in terms of potency or whatever, you'd have to ask a rheumatologist about that. But you can use uh, naproxen, ketorolac, ibuprofen, etc. And I have used a lot of other drugs to treat gout and pseudogout. Um, also, a thing to know about indomethacin, this in other non-steroidal, is that uh, it can be a labor suppressant that acts by decreasing uterine contractions and is an agent to close a patent ductus arteriosus. Side effects, we mentioned GI bleeding, allergic reactions, interstitial nephritis, tinnitus, and by the way, that's not tinnitus, um, which you'll be tempted to pronounce that way, it's tinnitus, and hepatitis. I have also seen uh, a couple of cases of meningitis, non, uh, sort of a uh, non-infectious um, meningitis caused by these drugs at high dosages. It's kind of unusual, but it can happen. Um, and then the key thing to know too is ibuprofen does not have a significant antiplatelet effect because ibuprofen reversibly inhibits COX-1 and COX-2, platelets can eventually replenish thromboxane A2 levels. Um, so key thing to know is that aspirin irreversibly inhibits. Um, so aspirin-treated uh, platelets are unable to synthesize um, thromboxane A2 for the lifespan of the platelet. Remember, a lifespan of a platelet is how long? 8 to 10 days and this thereby leads to decreased platelet aggregation, which is one of the reasons we give aspirin for people with coronary artery disease to decrease platelet aggregation. Um, and then the final other important thing to know about these, and there are a lot of important things to know about the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but because prostaglandins vasodilate the afferent arterial to the kidneys, NSAIDs decrease blood flow to the kidneys and may induce renal ischemia. So remember, you can't really, or if you do use them in the setting of chronic kidney disease, you want to be really careful about them because you can make matters worse. All right. Hope you don't have any questions for that because <clears throat> you can't really ask a question on a podcast. All right, next clinical vignette, a 25-year-old woman calls your clinic with a question regarding treatment of her headaches. 
She tells you she has been suffering from occasional headaches that usually are worse at the end of a stressful day. She also notes that she often feels shoulder tightness, and she mentioned that she is under a lot of stress at work. After more questioning, you feel comfortable enough to diagnose her with likely tension headaches. Most common cause of headache, by the way. You tell her that she can treat her headaches with the use of a common over-the-counter medication that acts to inhibit cyclooxygenase in the nervous system, and you instruct her to set up a follow-up appointment at your office if her symptoms worsen. And not to endorse this medication, but uh, I find that this medication works really well for my tension headaches. Not that this has anything to do with me, but... Maybe you have them too. Anyway, what is the drug we're talking about that inhibits cyclooxygenase in the central nervous system? Acetaminophen. Despite its ubiquity, the mechanism of acetaminophen is not completely understood. Acetaminophen acts to preferentially inhibit COX-2 in the central nervous system, thereby leading to decreased prostaglandin synthesis in the central nervous system. It is largely inactivated peripherally, thus it has minimal anti-inflammatory effects. Without prostaglandin E2 in the CNS, there is decreased sensation of the pain and a decrease of the set point at the hypothalamic thermoregulatory center, so it works as a very nice antipyretic as well. Acetaminophen is also believed to act at cannabinoid receptors, perhaps contributing to some of its analgesic properties fascinating. So the clinical uses, there are many uses for acetaminophen, as you know, including use as an antipyretic and an analgesic. Acetaminophen is a good antipyretic and analgesic alternative in patients who cannot tolerate aspirin or other NSAIDs, or in children with viral infections who should not take aspirin because of the risk of Reye's syndrome. Side effects, dizziness, uh, can occur, which I've rarely seen, and of course, fatal hepatotoxicity with overdose. So here's some really useful stuff for you to know about uh, acetaminophen overdoses. Uh, it's, I think, if not the most common cause of acute liver failure, it is one of the most common in the United States. So acetaminophen overdose occurs when the dose exceeds the capacity of the liver to safely metabolize acetaminophen through glucuronidation or sulfation. In this situation, acetaminophen is converted to a highly reactive metabolite, which I'm going to try and say this, N-acetyl-P-benzoquinone-imine, also known as NAPQI, which is N-A-P-Q-I. So this NAPQI, which causes is is what causes hepatocellular necrosis. So what's the antidote to that? N-acetylcysteine. You better know that for the steps. Is used as an antidote for acetaminophen overdose. It contains sulfhydryl groups which bind to and inactivate NAPQI, aka N-acetyl-P-benzoquinone-imine. There you go. Those are really important things to know about because acetaminophen is so uh, commonly used 
Um, next case, a six-year-old is seen in your pediatrics office for follow-up of her asthma. The patient's mother tells you that her daughter generally uses her albuterol rescue inhaler five or six times a day and that she often wakes up in the middle of the night coughing. Physical examination reveals mild expiratory wheezes. You decide that the patient requires more aggressive treatment of her asthma, and you begin to explain the different pharmacologic options to the patient and her mother. When the patient's mother mentions that the child has multiple allergies, you decide that the girl might benefit from the addition of a leukotriene receptor antagonist to her treatment regimen. So we're talking leukotriene receptor antagonist here. What is that? Well, monoleucast is what we're talking about. Um, another similar drug is zephyrlocast, um, which I actually haven't seen used too much, but that may just be where I practice. So the mechanism of action, monoleucast is a reversible inhibitor of the cystineal leukotriene 1 receptor. By blocking the binding of leukotriene C4, G4, and E4, so C, D, and E, with a 4 below them, to the receptor, the actions of leukotrienes C4, D4, and E4 are blocked. And of course, the actions of those leukotrienes is bronchoconstriction and increased mucus secretion. So you're blocking bronchoconstriction and increased mucus secretion, just so you know. Clinical uses, preventive treatment of asthma, including aspirin-induced asthma, and it's not useful in acute asthma attacks. It's really just for uh, chronic suppressive therapy. So what are the side effects of these so-called leukotriene receptor antagonists. Side effects include GI distress, headache, and here's one for you, eosinophilic vasculitis. <clears throat> so uh, I mentioned the other drug is zephyrlocast, and that inhibits hepatic cytochrome P450, uh, so that can lead to potentiation of drugs that are metabolized metabolized by cytochrome P450, such as warfarin, <clears throat> aka Coumadin. All right, let's move on to our very last case, because the magic number here is five, as you learned at the last podcast. So here you go. A 43-year-old woman presents to your office for follow-up after having undergone a kidney transplant three weeks prior. After her transplant, she was started on an immunosuppressive drug. She tells you that overall she's been feeling well over the past few weeks. Her physical examination is significant only for an elevated blood pressure of 150 over 90 millimeters of mercury. Laboratory studies reveal mildly elevated liver function tests. You decide to check a blood level of the immunosuppressant drug, as you suspect that her abnormal liver tests and blood pressure may be related to drug toxicity and that these measures will likely improve with the lowering of the dosage of this specific immunosuppressive medication. So what drug are we talking here? That's right, cyclosporine. Uh, which binds to the cyclophilin in the T-cell. The cyclosporin-cyclophilin complex then acts to inhibit calcineurin, which normally increases the expression of transcri transcription factors that activate the transcription of IL-2. So sometimes this class of drugs is known as calcineurin inhibitors. 
So IL-2 production is decreased, and this results in the reduced proliferation, differentiation, and activation of T cells, thereby decreasing production of other cytokines. So the clinical uses, uh, you know, primarily immunosuppressant in transplant patients, but it can also be used, uh, cyclosporin that is, for treatment of graft-versus-host disease, and treatment of a whole bunch of autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, and inflammatory bowel disease. So the side effects of cyclosporin include, ironically enough, nephrotoxicity, since you're using it for renal transplant patients, hepatotoxicity, gingival hyperplasia, and if you want to see a really good clinical image of gingival hyperplasia, or is some supposed to be called gingival overgrowth these days, but gingival overgrowth. If you search gingival overgrowth in my last name, a publication from a couple of years ago will pop up with some a uh, couple of really nice pictures of gingival overgrowth from a transplant drug. can also cause, uh, this is cyclosporin we're talking now, hirsutism, uh, increased susceptibility to infection, of course, because it's suppressing the immune system by definition, increased incidence of lymphomas, hyperglycemia, hypertension, and hyperkalemia. So a lot of things can go on when a patient's on this drug. So always think about drug side effects when you're seeing a patient who's on immunosuppressive therapy with cyclosporin. And note that most side effects of cyclosporin are dose-dependent and can be decreased by administering lower doses of the drug. And the last thing to know is that <clears throat> cyclosporine 2 is metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system, or CYP3A4 is the other name for that system. So that's about all we got for you today. I'm going to usher you out with some more toots and the metals to make your day. And we'll see you next time for some more clinical vignettes that hopefully will help you succeed in medicine, in your practice, and, of course, on the step exams. Thanks and have a good day.
Sunday.